Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. It is an intense concern in an environment where we're borrowing, what, $77,000 a second, that this is what we're doing. We're catering to a handful of members and their feelings. We have some critical issues, the supplemental, the support for Israel, protecting the democracy of Ukraine to manage the humanitarian crisis on the border, and less than 30 days on a potential shutdown of the government. We need new leaders, people who haven't spent their lives in politics. That's why I'm running for Congress, to fight for Arizona's aid. There should not be voter intimidation within or without 75 feet of either polling locations or drop boxes. So we, we've got to figure out a way to move beyond anything that resembles voter intimidation. And it's not as simple as just a foot limit. Intimidating voters at 76 feet is not acceptable either. And that is what we are calling on as the AGs of this country, is for Meta to change its practices and to protect the health and safety and welfare of our children. And with me to talk about a high-profile entrant into the GOP primary for a West Valley congressional seat, the recommendations coming out of the governor's elections task force and more are Paul Bentz of High Ground. Hey there, Paul. Good morning. And Stacey Pearson of Lumen Strategies. Stacey, good morning to you. Hi. So let's talk about uh, CD8. This is a Debbie Lesko seat. We, of course, learned last week that she would not be running for re-election. We learned this week that Blake Masters will be running for the seat. Uh, he is joining Abe Hamaday, uh, who has already announced his candidacy. Probably others is sort of the conventional wisdom. There will be other uh, Republicans running in this uh, pretty safe Republican seat. Paul, I'm curious what you make of, of a guy from Tucson in Blake Masters deciding to run for this West Valley district. Well, first of all, you are right. It is an incredibly safe Republican seat. It's a plus 14 to plus 17 percent percentage advantage uh, participation. And whoever wins the Republican primary is going to win this. And we saw this several years ago when Trent Franks announced that he wasn't going to run, that we saw a lot of people jump into the pool. I suspect we'll see that again. Um, Blake Masters in that sounder we just heard said he hasn't spent people we haven't spent their life in politics. I'd also point out he hasn't spent his life in uh, the Northwest Valley either. Um, I think this is the pressure release valve that we didn't get with redistricting. Mm. Uh, with the census the way it was, we were supposed to get a 10th congressional district and then we did not. That would sort of re rearrange the deck chairs and given people an opportunity to try different things. That didn't happen in 2022. So now this is the pressure release valve. I th We see that now Hamaday is not going for the county attorney race. He's going to go into this race. Masters isn't going to challenge Lake in the Senate race. He's going to go into this race. I think this is going to be a large collection of Republicans jumping into this race. Well, and Stacey, in this case, we have two people, two candidates who both ran statewide last year. And, you know, Hamaday came really, really close to winning just a couple <laughs> hundred votes. Close, yeah. yeah. At, well, yeah, very close. And, and Masters... Well, that race wasn't as close, but it wasn't a total blowout either. How do you see this shaping up between these, at least these two, and, and as Paul referenced, probably others as well? This, it's interesting because this is the reflection of a bonkers Republican Party in Arizona. When we've got Kelly Ward and Jeff DeWitt recruiting candidates or helping candidates get qualified. This is the group of tinfoil hat wearers that they selected, that they that they attracted. You know, it's what my dad used to say, you are the company you keep. And so for now a, 
a number of years, we've had a Republican Party that believes in chemtrails, that believes in in election meddling and the big lie, that believe in all sorts of crazy things. And now we have a, a cesspool of crazy in a beautiful area of our state. And they're going to have to sort that out. Paul, we saw pretty quickly after... Uh, after Masters got in, that Carrie Lake, you referenced Carrie Lake, uh, she is, of course, running for U.S. Senate. She endorsed Hamaday. So I guess the, the era of Blake and Lake is over then? It sure seems that way. I mean, I think the other thing, though, is that Masters has proven to either be able to raise money or have folks who are going to give him money. Uh, Hamaday's main source of funding was a loan that then he then forgave or gave back at some point. Um, this is going to be a crowded field. And, you know, two people really competing for that Trump lane does open things up for other uh, individuals. We heard that Debbie Lesko is likely to endorse Ben Toma if he decides to get mm. into the race. It should be noted that Ben Toma's district LD uh, 27 is a significant portion of this district. Toma actually does live there. Um, but we're going to see, I think, other other things at play here. I mean, Masters had the sprawling, beautiful commercial that he announced, mostly shot in southern Arizona, mostly not in the district itself. Um, and I think there's there's an opportunity for somebody local to at least be competitive. Early on, the polling that we're seeing is all demonstrated based on name ID. You have two candidates that ran at the statewide level. They were uh, talked about quite significantly over the course of the election. So certainly they're going to be the front runners. But in this case, what we saw in the race to replace Franks back in the day was it came down to ground game, it came down to money, and it came down to local support. So I think if you look at individuals, there's several conservative mayors in the district, including Mayor Beck of Peoria, Mayor Wires of Glendale. I think they would be very influential. Don't sleep on Governor Jan Brewer. She endorsed Lesko in the last go around, and it made a big difference in that race as well. I think that there's still a lot of race to be run in CDA. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Stacey, we're it's it's early yet. Like there's a long time to go before ballots are cast uh, next summer. It's still, t- do you agree with Paul? There's still time for other, maybe lesser known candidates to get out there and get their name ID out and raise money and and maybe even overcome the the name ID advantages that folks like Masters and Hamaday have right now. It it is always going to come down to money. I mean, certainly time helps, but we're talking about ballots in our mailboxes in less than a year. And so and there is going to be so much noise on the channel from the top of the ticket, from our Senate race and which we're already seeing from our Senate, U.S. Senate race, Mm -hmm. from our presidential race there. It's going to be difficult for congressional races to cut through that clutter. All right. So talking about an election next year, a task force put forward by uh, Governor Hobbs this week came out with some recommendations for changes that it would like to see, uh, among them an automatic restoration of voting rights for convicted felons after their release from prison. And one that was caught a lot of people, um, I guess maybe a lot of folks are talking about in terms of extending the so-called protected zone, 75 feet. Like if you go vote in person, there's no politicking. You can't really talk to people uh, from campaigns or candidates within 75 foot of the polling place. This task force would like to extend that to ballot drop boxes. We, of course, saw last year, you know, folks with guns, for example, patrolling uh, drop boxes. Stacey, is this something that you think would make an appreciable difference for folks who, especially those who vote by mail? It certainly sends the right signal to folks who vote by mail. I I am one of the people who dropped off my ballot at a drop box when it was being guarded, and I have an air quotes, by lunatics. 
Um, that's a that's alarming. <laughs> it was unsettling. How about that? I I still approach the box. I still put my my envelope in, and it was unsettling. I, I was worried about them taking my license plate down. I mean, there were there were other considerations I was having that I should never never have crossed my mind when I'm voting. Um, so it certainly sends the right signal to voters that we we want you to participate in this process in a way that is never unsettling. Paul, what do you think? I mean, is this the kind of thing we know that the majority of Arizonans vote early and whether they put their ballot in a mailbox or in a Dropbox, a lot, a lot of folks use this option. Early voting is incredibly popular in the state and every effort that has been put out to try to mitigate that or try to reduce it is incredibly unpopular and not well received. I think in this case, what we're looking at is uh, limiting participation or at least intimidation near a drop box is a good thing. I think people want voting should be accessible. Voting should be easy. People who want to vote should be able to do so. And so, um, you know, if you're standing out in front of a drop box holding a gun, what are you thinking you're going to do with that? Is someone, are you trying to protect it from someone stealing it? No, it's it's about intimidation. And so I think um, that's one of the more practical, I think, uh, things that they suggested. But the bigger one that they hit on, though, that really needs to be addressed is this issue with recall. The, the legislature narrowing the recall amount to less than a half a percent which is going to mess with the election's timelines and when things can be delivered, um, it's chasing after something that's simply not there. We don't have this massive problem with these recounts and with the uh, collection and tabulation of our ballots. We have an incredibly well-run election system. It's important to continue to note that and have people who are willing to say that. Casting doubt on that is it's deleterious to the de- you know, feeling about de- democracy, but it's also it's going to create real election problems. Imagine we already have a couple of days it takes to count these ballots after the election and people think it's too long. Um, Imagine now that going into a recount process that can drag it on even further to the point where we might actually miss deadlines. Well, all of this kind of raises the question that, you know, you have these recommendations that this task force put out and there were Democrats and Republicans on this task force. But like they some of them can probably be done administratively, but a good number of them will probably have to go through the legislature, which, as we've seen over the last several years, <laughs> right. has very different views about changes to election law. So I'm curious, Paul, how you see that sort of shaken out? Well, Senator Bennett already said, you know, he's on this task force as well, that he doesn't see the legislature doing anything about the recount issue. And and he's probably right. I mean, you have a one vote majority in uh, both legislative bodies for Republicans. All it takes is one to say no. And I can think of a few that likely would. Um, and, you know, every all their recommendations required at least 75 percent of the group to agree. So that mm-hmm. means these were all bipartisan solutions. And there's certain things like the cross-county voter registration that I think make a lot of sense. The one that is the most pressing that they that the, some of these folks just don't deny is even a problem is this uh, turnaround when it comes to recounts. You go ahead, Stacey. And going back to one of the examples you gave on the automatic rights restoration, mm-hmm. I ran the marijuana legalization campaign. We had to define expungement in Arizona state law. Arizona is so far behind in terms of criminal justice reform and rights restoration and the time served movement that this could very well be something the legislature could take up and it could get referred. I mean, people in Arizona are still in the punish, 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 punish era of criminal justice and not the reduce recidivism, uh, restore rights, honor time served, allow people to make a new life. 
Interesting. Guys, I want to talk about the Free Enterprise Club. We just talked about uh, intimidation at uh, ballot drop boxes. The Free Enterprise Club is suing to just get rid of ballot drop boxes altogether. (laughs) Paul, you talked about how early voting is incredibly popular and incredibly used here in Arizona. Is this the kind of thing that like folks would be really upset about if ballot drop boxes were done away with? or, Or is it maybe niche enough of an aspect of early voting that wouldn't be that big a deal? I think it's a key element of early voting that would cause a stir if it were to actually happen. It's along the other efforts that are, quite frankly, election suppression, trying to change the rules um, in order to try to make a result that they care about. What's ironic, as I've said before, is that Republicans dominated early voting for more than 20 years. They brought it to the state. They perfected it. They used it to a great degree of success for many, many years. It's only until Democrats started to catch up that suddenly early voting is feels like it's wrong or that there's something shady with it, that drop boxes and other items um, suddenly shouldn't be trusted. Uh, they're trying to claim that state law, state election law doesn't allow for these unstaffed boxes. But the irony is, you know, these are the same folks that don't really want state law to apply anywhere else. They want local control. They want the counties to decide on everything. But suddenly state law applies to drop boxes. It's just sort of a double standard that we see when people are picking and choosing the laws that they care about to try to make their way. But um, these ballot boxes, I think they should be st- here to stay and making voting as easy as possible should continue to be. Well, and Stacey, you talked about how you use ballot drop boxes. Yeah. Like what kind of impact might it have? Let's say the Free Enterprise Club is successful and a judge says, OK, we got to get rid of these. What kind of impact does that have? Well, uh, to answer that question, I'd ask us all to zoom out of Maricopa County or Pima County, zoom out of Phoenix, zoom out of Tucson. You live on the Navajo Nation and and you're you don't have daily mail service to your residence. The only option is to drop your ballot off at an unmanned ballot drop box. Mm. So this isn't as much of an urban problem. I mean, look, if I, if I had to stick it in the blue box versus the drop box or if I had to go to the county recorder's office or the you know state elections office, I could get there from my house to my in, in my car in 20 minutes. Um, if I'm on the Navajo Nation or if I'm a, a, in Page or if I'm at Lake Havasu City, I'm in rural Arizona, I'm in Wilcox, I'm at those rural communities would have a disproportionate impact, particularly the tribal communities. And it is not a coincidence that tribal communities typically vote blue. Based on the the groups that are trying Mm -hmm. to get rid of these, you're saying? Exactly. All right. So we saw uh, yesterday there's going to be a a court case in or arguments in uh, December before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, on Arizona's abortion laws. Uh, There's been some some chatter, especially this week, about uh, some comments that one of the justices, uh, former Maricopa County attorney Bill Montgomery, has made in the past about Planned Parenthood. We saw just yesterday, uh, late, late yesterday, that Planned Parenthood has filed a motion to try to get Justice Montgomery to recuse himself from this case. He has previously said he won't do that, that he's capable of hearing the case and and judging it based on the facts. Paul, what do you make of the fact that Planned Parenthood is trying to do this? And apparently there's no real, like, formal mechanism for for trying to get this to happen. It's an interesting situation because he has been, because Montgomery was a longtime candidate and a longtime uh, Republican representative and has a long record of speaking out on issues like this and has has a very conservative belief about abortion, um, <laughs> that it's something to point to that uh, that you really 
they they can point to. It'll be interesting to see. Certainly, I don't think he's going to recuse himself. I, I don't see that happening. I think it draws attention to their case, draws attention to the points that they're trying to make. But I think it scores more political points than it does score legal points. Is this is this more of a, a political issue? I mean, he said he's not going to recuse himself. And as, as you know, Paul just pointed out, he probably won't. Um, is this more of a political issue than a legal one? It is both. At some point, judicial integrity has come to question from the highest court, right? We're talking about free RVs for our Supreme Court justice. Um, And this also is a microcosm of that. When we have a seated Supreme Court justice or Supreme Court judge um, who called abortion genocide in all cases, no sane person thinks that he's going to be objective when he's looking at a territorial ban. And it would have been smart to him for him to recuse because regardless of the decision, you know, and we're assuming that the Supreme Court's going to uphold this, um, but it, it, the decision then becomes about him and the lack of integrity on that bench versus the letter of the law. So does this become something that, and this is going to be a cynical political question, is this something that Planned Parenthood can use to its advantage in some way, even if it is on the losing end of the case? It, women... Women not being able to access medical care is always a loss. So Planned Parenthood doesn't win by losing. In fact, the best case scenario is we had a we would have a national um, bill that passes. So their, their women's health care is not being used as a pawn. That said, I can imagine thousands of additional women picking up petition sheets and collecting signatures on behalf of the initiative that has already been filed. Right. So it, the, it's quite, yeah, it certainly could be a shot in the arm, but there is no there is no win in the loss. Sure. Paul, do you see this as potentially helpful in the effort to to get Planned Parenthood to get the abortion rights uh, initiative on the ballot? Well, I think the issue will be on the ballot. I think it's going to be a, a major issue for younger voters, for female voters, and I think it will be uh, a turnout mechanism other w- that otherwise in the rematch between two septuagenarians that it wouldn't be as exciting. We wouldn't see that 79.9% turnout again in a Biden-Trump rematch. But with this issue on the ballot, particularly raising the profile with uh, filings like this, as well as a very aggressive signature gathering effort, I suspect it will be on the ballot and it will bring out a significant number of younger voters. It might be one of the biggest motivating factors that increases turnout. Interesting. All right, guys, let's uh, go zoom out a little bit uh, to Washington, D.C., where after three weeks, uh, the U.S. House has a speaker, which means the House can get back to business. Um, Mike Johnson from uh, Louisiana is the new House speaker, somebody that I'm guessing a lot of folks don't know a whole lot about. But, uh, Paul, as it turns out, his views are not that dissimilar uh, from some of the candidates, the earlier candidates, who could not get the votes to, to become House Speaker. Right. He is a Jim Jordan supporter. He was the architect or at least one of the architects of the Stop the Steal movement. Um, so I, I think from the alignment perspective, they, there's not a big difference there. Um, one thing to note, though, is he's only been in Congress since 2017. He has not lived anything besides the uh, contentious uh, relationship that we've seen uh, that's marked of the congressional uh, situation for a long time now. And, you know, he's a, a big time Trump supporter and Trump called and you know put out the whatever on saying that he was going to support Johnson. And I think that's, you know, the, the Republicans are going to have to own that in some way, shape or form by picking him. But there's a bigger issue, though, that that Jake Sherman from Punchbowl just pointed out. And that is that 
Um, he's going, Johnson's going to have to raise money and he has only raised about $5 million total in his very few years in Congress. Uh, McCarthy was a prolific fundraiser for the NRCC, the National Republican mm-hmm. Congressional Committee, as well as their super PACs. Um, that falls to the speaker. And they've told the speaker, you need to raise $250 million for our super PAC. And I'm just not sure that he's going to be able to do that. You know, he's not going to have time to develop the relationships. And I think that puts a, a even, even more lasting effect besides Republicans hitching their wagon to this uh, to this Jim Jordan supporter, more that they're going to not have the resources they need to be successful. Well, Stacey, does this in any way, do you think his spot now as House Speaker, does that do anything to races down down the ballot, like you think about someone like Juan Siskamani or someone like David Schweikert, who are seen, rightly or wrongly, as being vulnerable Republicans. They both voted for Jim Jordan. They both voted for Mike Johnson. Does this affect their races at all, do you think? Absolutely. And it, look, if if he is not able to wrangle his caucus and create a functional government for the next 11 months— it will impact members of his caucus who are in tight races. And you just named the two in Arizona that are seen as the that as potentials to flip. And we have such slim margins in the House that dysfunction or holding up nominations for military appointees, those kinds of things are going to matter in states like Arizona with a large military population. And I know that's the setup, but those yeah. kinds of dysfunction, the not getting aid to Ukraine, not getting aid to to Israel, not getting aid to our allies, not funding important programs, dropping children off Medicaid, um, those kitchen table issues or those water cooler issues are going to impact those close races. I'm just trying to picture the ads, though, because for years and years, we've seen pictures and ominous music of someone like Nancy Pelosi, for example, who folks generally know who she is. But like, I can't I'm having a hard time imagining a picture, a TV ad with Mike Johnson, even if you say his name and his title, like that's not going to resonate the way that like Pelosi does. I Googled him, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I do this for a living. I'm like, who's this? Who? What did he do? Who is this guy? Um, So we're going to see a lot more of that, which also, you know, to your point, it gives the Democrats an opportunity, an extraordinary opportunity to define this guy. Mm. And right now we're winning the money war. And so this gives Democrats a wide open lane to say this guy's a lunatic. He's an election denier. He's got a tinfoil hat. I mean, that would be the ad I would be running. Like, look at look at this guy. I mean, he he mentioned God 153 times in his in his acceptance speech, which is great. You know, uh, your religion is your choice. But what we've seen in legislation coming from the Republican Party is what led to the the reversal on Roe. You're now forcing your God on me. Paul, just about 30 seconds left. Safe to say that after Democrats maybe have their campaigns, we maybe won't have to Google Mike Johnson anymore? Yes, because we'll hear Mike Johnson doesn't care about Arizona or something to that effect over and over. Um, I I think that it's a little more difficult to define than, say, Jim Jordan would have been. But they have rolled out a pretty oppressive agenda and timeline of things that they want to accomplish. If they do those things... There is a chance that, you know, Republicans can demonstrate that they've governed and be in a better spot. If they do not, if they do not wrangle their caucus, they will be in deep trouble. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Paul Benz of High Ground, Stacey Pearson of Lumen Strategies. Thanks you, thanks you both for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.